0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Quality Care Talks. Sponsored by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, HFAM, Quality Care Talks explores leadership, innovation, and the critical issues facing long-term and post-acute care providers serving Marylanders in need. Whether you are a provider, vendor, or consumer, Quality Care Talks will help you navigate the complex and ever-changing healthcare industry.
1: Hey, Bob Atlas, welcome to the HFAM podcast, Quality Care Talks. Thanks for making the time. Thank you, Joe. Good to do it. Uh, Well, my friend, I'm glad to be here in MHA offices. It's a great day today. And how long have you been now in this new role as president and CEO of the Maryland Hospital Uh, Association? Just a tad more than five months. All right. You're not running for the doors
2: or anything? You're still enjoying it? No, I come to work early every day, eager to do it. It's really Very enjoyable. Great team, great hospitals, great environment throughout Maryland. Uh, A lot of collaboration and interest in doing the right thing. You know, I would agree with you on all of those fronts. I think you're the right guy at
1: the right time in a great organization. You're building a team. You've inherited part of a great team. What's been your biggest learning so far five months into this
2: job? Well, there's so much to learn across the board. I've lived in Maryland for most of the last 40 years and uh, and yet much of my work was occurred nationally and so while I had activity in Maryland I didn't really have gained the intimate familiarity that I'm getting now and I've been traveling the state and meeting with hospitals across the state and others and just to see the diversity of the state and the diversity of the healthcare interests it's really amazing and seeing each Institution and the people in their settings and the experiences that they have, the differences in the populations even from one county to the next, the correlation between income levels and health status and and the way hospitals get used is uh, it's really just amazing to get exposed to that and to be able to process it as I contemplate how we'll try to take hospitals and healthcare. In new directions. So, for the listeners of the podcast,
1: remind folks how many hospitals are in MHA's membership. Well, we count
2: 64 total entities, 46 of which are actual hospitals. A bulk of those hospitals, all but three really, are in the so called GBR, the Global Budgeted Revenue System. The others are a couple of psychiatric hospitals, standalone psychiatric hospitals, and one pediatric. Hospital in Washington.
1: And we're
2: incredibly fortunate in Maryland
1: because we have hospitals and medical centers that are internationally recognized, teaching hospitals such as Maryland and Johns Hopkins. We're also blessed that we have pretty incredible depth, right, with regard to our hospital sort of capacity in Maryland with some of the other hospital and medical centers in Maryland.
2: Right. Well, I agree. You know, I think that the model has done some good, some real good in the sense that it enables hospitals that are in less populated and less well-insured communities to keep up the capabilities needed to make care truly accessible at the local level. You know, you go to other states and there are these small rural hospitals that are really tremendously challenged. Of course, you know, they have they can have the critical access hospital designation in those other states, but that's just keeping them, you know, slightly above water, not really enabling them to thrive. And we've got hospitals in smaller communities, smaller hospitals that are really continue to be major factors in their communities, making good investments in the health of those
1: communities. Certainly we see that out in Western Maryland and over on the Eastern Shore where those hospitals and the post-acute members of HFAM work
2: very much well together, very much in concert. That's what I hear, you know. The hospitals, in some cases, sending their physicians over to the to the uh, post-acute care facilities, the long-term care facilities, to work with the patients and mm-hmm. uh, take care of them where they are, rather than have them revert back into the acute care setting. Absolutely, I mean, you know, most really effective
1: quality care, post-acute, long-term care providers in Maryland obviously employ. Their own physicians or they have a long-standing relationship with a physician group practice. But the, really the best in show now are doing those joint rounds where where there's a touch on both sides with physicians, you know, sort of maintaining some of that clinical capacity in the post-acute environment. You right. talked you, you spoke a moment ago that you've grown up and sort of spent most of your professional career in Maryland, but you've been all around the country working on national issues as a national consultant. Tell the listeners of the podcast a little bit about what brought you here today, about your professional background
2: working on these national issues. Okay, well, I'll be very quick. I, you know, At age 19, while I was in college, I decided I wanted to go and have a career in healthcare management.
1: Okay, wait, wait, wait. wait. At 19 in college? Yes. What causes a 19-year-old <laughs> in
2: college to make that decision? Well, I, I took a sociology course in bureaucratic organizations. And so hospitals were prominently featured. And I was contemplating my career moves as I would leave college and learned that. So I was intrigued about hospitals, and I learned that you could actually go to uh, graduate programs in hospital administration. And that's what I pursued. I I actually went to the University of Chicago's business school, which had a uh, kind of a carve-out program in it healthcare administration. It was the first such program in the country, started in the 1930s. Kind of a healthcare administration MBA. Yeah, it's an MBA with a concentration in healthcare administration. It was a great program. And as it happened, family circumstances led me to want to work in the DC market coming out of graduate school. And so I came here and I somewhat strangely ended up as a commissioned officer in the public health service. Worked in the federal government for two and a half years. You had like a uniform, the
1: whole bit. You had the dress. I did, not, I did not have the uniform. Okay, they, yeah. they
2: didn't give me a uniform allowance because I worked basically in the bureaucracy, not at a not at a clinical site. Right. And and I got recruited out of the government into a consulting firm, which which was working on launching HMOs back mm. back at a time when it was a very different kind of industry. It was right. all not for profit and if you almost call it movement based. By the way, all of this happened my first entry into the consulting space happened by the age of twenty five. So it's incredible. I had my MBA when I was twenty three. And a long career in consulting and all in healthcare. And I used to think of myself very much as a management consultant, focusing on, you know, the business side of healthcare and how people could succeed in their local markets and what have you. Worked with health plans initially, but a lot of those health plans started being started by hospitals, and and I worked with hospitals extensively over the decades. And gradually things moved into the, uh, pulled me into the policy arena, and for example, um, my predecessor here at MHA, back when she was at the American Hospital Association, Carmela Coyle, she was my client, and they published a series uh, called The Trend Watch, which was a lot of statistical, statistically-based information about policy and uh, industry issues. And uh, I was virtually the editor-in-chief of that for about 10 years. Wow, well, talk about uh, background. You couldn't have planned it any better. Well... I don't know that I did plan it I guess. You might say I was strategically opportunistic as different opportunities came along. So, you know, I I moved moved across a number of consulting organizations over the years. I spent a lot of time not just being a consultant but being an executive in those firms, number one or number two executive in a couple of firms. And then, you know, some circumstances evolved where the Maryland opportunity at MHA came open. I had been working with the uh, Maryland Medicaid Agency on a uh, initiative to uh, find an integrated care solution for dual eligibles, which, of course, you participated in, Joe, in that work group that I facilitated. And so I became exposed to a, a lot of the actors in Maryland mm-hmm. through that exercise, and also MHA. And when Carmela was known to be leaving, I chatted with some folks and I was encouraged to make myself a candidate, and I thought, "Why not? And, Why not?" And I instantly became excited at the prospect and survived the uh, the search process. Well, I which think, was honestly, I think, competitive. I, I think the folks that
1: conducted the search, and I think MHA made an extraordinarily good decision. Well, and thanks. I appreciate I, you know, I mean that. it genuinely. I, 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 mean I it hope genuinely. I live up to that. Well, let me ask you: What are you most excited about in this? relatively new role what gets you just really stoked in the morning and
2: well you know, well, you know I, I believe this truly and that is an opportunity to actually have an impact here you know i'm not saying that this role is the dominant role in the, in all of healthcare in maryland but it's certainly a position that allows me to contribute along with other healthcare leaders in the state to really make constructive change you know we have the the unique model that gets everybody engaged and sort of forces us to shed some of our traditional behaviors. And so I'm just hugely motivated to be able to try to make that impact. And just a few months into this job, I'm feeling like it's actually doable. Right. Well, I'm with you. I think we have a tremendous
1: potential to have impact and to create a new way of providing affordable quality care while also reducing the total cost of care. So what keeps you up at night in
2: this new role? Probably the corollary to that very same excitement, which is the challenge of doing it. There's so many people to get together on this and um, not everybody's equally motivated. I'd say everybody's highly motivated, but not motivated in the same direction at all times. And, and frankly, everybody's so busy, Addressing their day-to-day challenges, that sometimes it's hard to pull everybody away and think about the the bigger picture and the more strategic aims that I think ultimately are necessary to address the you know to, to solve the problems that we face. And so, it's just a matter of figuring out where to start biting into this particularly large challenge that we have. One bit of action at a time, one day at a time. Right. I'm feeling very. I want to do big things, but I understand the need for a little bit of incrementalism. Absolutely. Well, you and I have had a chance to
1: interact as colleague association executives, and we've had the discussion about much of our job is more shuttle diplomacy than it is UN General Assembly. Does that still resonate with you?
2: Yes. I'm spending a lot of time in one-on-one encounters with folks, and more so than in large group contexts, and I think partly It works better because people are more candid when they're not out in public and you can be more candid with them and you can get people to make some commitments that they might not make if they were simply posturing. In a larger, more public setting, right. Well, how do you see
1: the Maryland total cost of care model advancing and what role do you see for post-acute and long-term care providers in the model going forward?
2: So the, uh, the model, you know, the official start date of the new model is January 1. We're already operating under some of the very same incentives with the so-called total cost of care guardrails that have been in place already. Mm-hmm. And so what the new model does is it puts in this incentive for hospitals to attack the total cost of care in ways that are a little more powerful than, um, than before before. With their some of their Medicare revenue being at risk for the outcomes on the, the total per capita cost of Medicare beneficiaries, so at least with regard to the Part A and Part B spend, not mm-hmm. not Part D, right? So post-acute and long-term care are really completely woven into the fabric here. I mean, post-acute, of course, is the you know is a major Part A uh, component. Clearly, the hospitals have no incentive at this point to keep people in their, their beds or even to take them into their beds in the first place. So when you think of the so-called continuum of care, you, know, you need to know that patients are leaving to the right setting after discharge if they've been in a hospital. And if they're, let's say, you know, a candidate for hospitalization and perhaps sitting in, uh, residing in a long-term care setting, We want to make sure that they only come to the hospital when they truly need to be in the hospital. And so to the extent that we can, our hospitals can team with post-acute and long-term care providers both on both directions of that movement, I think we can really address that total cost of care. And if you look at the results of the existing model, you know, the costs of hospital services are within the targets and the costs of the non-hospital services have been uh, the ones that have been pushing up against the guardrails. And we do need to get that under control.
1: Most recently, the, the push has been on um, specialty physician and drug costs, right, with regard to the guardrails. But when we first did the the contract, what was the waiver is the contract. There was some predictable increase on the post-acute side, given mm-hmm. that relationship between the movement of the patient from the hospital to the post-acute setting. Right. The trick going forward is going to have that all of that even out net right. net to have better healthcare outcomes while at the same time you're saving the total cost of care.
2: Right. And I think that, you know, I as you know from my past work on the dual eligibles and just really the entire arc of my career because I've spent a lot of time even in my consulting life dealing with the healthcare safety net and vulnerable mm-hmm. populations, I do believe that what people refer to as the social determinants of health really matter. And, you know, some of that is lifelong issues like diet and exercise, but some of it is things that happen, you know, immediately post-discharge. If somebody's going home, uh, being discharged to a situation, a family and residential situation that really can't take care of them, or they have you know transportation or literacy or you name it things that are barriers to their getting proper aftercare they're going to bounce back they're going to they're going to have follow on hospitalization hospitalizations due to exacerbations of their conditions and so we need good management of of the care and it's not strictly limited to what we think of as healthcare it's not all medical interventions that are necessary it's making sure in the post-acute setting and what you might call the pre-acute setting that may have a long-term care element to it, that people have the right supports.
1: Yeah, no, agreed
2: on agreed on all of those
1: points. And I think to the extent that hospitals and post-acute providers can move from the current system of vendorship to partnership and really sort of Pull back the curtain and say, "Look, how can we help you?" Post-acute providers going to hospitals and say, "What is a problem that we can take for you at a lower cost with uh, right. good <clears throat> clinical outcomes?" And vice versa. That's what keeps keeps me sort of going to work in the morning. That excites me.
2: Right, and I think you know, partnership is is vital. As I often say, the problem with incentives is they work, and right now we have some misaligned incentives. And we need to get those incentives aligned so that everybody is rowing in the same direction. Hey, thanks for that, Bob.
1: Really insightful. Friends, why don't we take a break here on HFAM Quality Care Talks. Today, you're listening to Joe D'Amatos, the president and CEO of HFAM, me, interview Bob Atlas, my friend and colleague at the Maryland Hospital Association. See you on the flip side.
0: You're listening to Quality Care Talks, Produced by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, HFAM. We'd like to invite you to join us at the HFAM Leadership Institute on September 27, 2018, at the Hotel at Arundel Preserve. Sponsored by WGL Energy and Medline, the Institute's keynote speaker will be National Healthcare Leader and CEO of Curio Wellness. Michael Bronfine. Mr. Bronfine will discuss the current and future impact of medical cannabis in mainstream healthcare across all settings. It's an event not to be missed. To register, please visit www.hfam.org. And now back to the conversation.
1: Hey, welcome back again. This is Joe D'Amatos, the president and CEO of the Health Facilities Association of Maryland and today we are at the Maryland Hospital Association sitting down and having a conversation with Bob Atlas the president and CEO of the Maryland Hospital Association. I know my answer to this question but I'm I'm interested in your objective answer. So are you bullish or bearish
2: on the future of post acute long term care in Maryland? Well, you know, I of course I Have learned to distinguish between post acute care and long term care. Smart. Took me a while, but I'm I'm very bullish in that you know we've got to not medicalize everything and and yet people need levels of care that you know that they wouldn't necessarily get just being at home. Um, Not everybody. You know, it's not a one size fits all. It's got to be very patient centric and identify what individual people's needs are and what their circumstances are. And as I said earlier in the interview, it's a lot about what resources there are in the community and family supports and you name it. So post-acute and long-term care are absolutely a key part of the uh, the care continuum. And um, we just have to find ways to do better partnering, integrating, sharing in the incentives appropriately and... Really, something very simple, and that's keeping the lines of communication open and using them. Because when people talk to each other about individual cases, or you know, use database-based communication vehicles, we get a lot of better outcomes.
1: Now, agreed. You know, just as incentives work, public policies result in specific outcomes, right? So the public policies in Maryland have resulted in the fact that post-acute long-term care providers, and you're right are absolutely distinctly different, provide services to a very highly acute patient population when compared to other communities in the country. And really, that's an outgrowth of policies that revolved back when now Senator Ben Cardin was Speaker of the House all those many years ago. One specific example of that is there was a time in Maryland where the majority of long-term first acute ventilator care was provided in, in hospitals. And Maryland very much led the nation. And now most of that ventilator care now is provided at a lower cost, in a lower cost, clinically appropriate setting in skilled nursing and rehab centers in Maryland. Again, a very unique thing to Maryland. You know, I look at the waiver and I say, you know, I look at those, what are those opportunities clinically and financially to produce greater outcomes with the partnership of hospitals and post-acute long-term care providers?
2: Right. Well, people with greater clinical abilities than than mine will identify those things, honestly, because, you know, the technology changes, clinical practice uh, insights change, and, you know, the word innovation gets overused and it's meaningless without understanding what you're innovating. But I'll tell you something I, I recently heard somebody talk about, exnovation. As Interesting. In, as in, it's a simple concept, which is to say... You can't keep adding new stuff. You got to take something away. Right. And something you know, we need to find those practices that are no longer effective, and rid ourselves of them so that we can make space for the innovation. Unfortunately, a lot of innovation is really just adding costs. Everybody will argue that their new widget or technique or piece of software or whatever is going to save money, but really it's in so many ways it's adding to the cost. I certainly saw that in my role as a consultant. I had everybody saying their new thing right across things. the country, right? Everybody says my you know my I'm not the problem, somebody else is the problem. I've had enough clients across the entire healthcare industry. I used to say to my colleagues, you know somebody's not telling the truth here because they're all saying that they're not the problem, somebody else is the problem. And that's why again I think we need to align incentives, get partnerships, innovate where it's gonna be useful, exnovate where we can identify things that are no longer effective and necessary. And you know, as you described, you know, skilled nursing has been a has changed over the years and you know, we need to take advantage of where those improvements will benefit the system, benefit patients, benefit the uh, the collective budget, so to speak. Well, let me shift gears a little bit.
1: Look, we've been blessed in our careers to have both personal and professional mentors, both formal and informal. Who are some of the mentors that got you to this opportunity, this role today that have made a difference in your life?
2: I've had a number of them. And, you know, probably the funny thing is, as I think about each of them, I Probably learned some of the same things from each of them at different stages of my career, mostly to, uh, one used to say, bluntly, engage mind before opening mouth. Right. Good advice. Uh, Another, you know, other related is you don't always have to say everything you think. And, And another one more recently heard is never pass up the opportunity to stop talking. But Larry Lewin, of the the founder of the Lewin Group, of course, he passed away a number of years ago. But I worked at, at that firm for 15 years, and I succeeded him not immediately, but ultimately as the president of that company. You know, he taught me a lot about policy, uh, connectedness to the to industry and healthcare, and about you know the patience necessary to be a good leader in this field and and also really how to think strategically. And so he was, he was a great mind, well-regarded in the field. And I was privileged to, uh, to be able to, to learn from him. And even after, when I became president of that company and he was retired, you know, we stayed in touch. And he, um, But he didn't tell me what to do so much as a little bit of taking credit for, right. <laughs> for where I'd gotten. Wasn't one of his strengths is he knew the right questions to ask? Yes. In fact, you know, he taught me that one of the keys to success as a consultant, but certainly not limited to being a consultant, is first and foremost to listen. He used to say the client probably knows the answer to their problem, but they can't sort of sort the signal from the noise. And that's radar speak for, yeah, yeah. for folks who don't know that. And By asking the right questions and listening, you can help the client find the answer that they actually already have, but they're too close to the situation to to discern. And that's really, you don't have to be a consultant in a consultant role to recognize the value of listening. And so, you know, I give that advice to everybody. I, I get questions a lot about what does it take to succeed in this field and and to be a leader and you don't have to be at the top of our organization to Mm -hmm. be a leader. And I think listening is the first and foremost thing. Helping others is really a tremendous, tremendously important thing. And I don't just mean doing the work that you're asked to do, but to be seeing needs that others may not have asked for help Mm -hmm. and not to, you know, horn in and say, I know better, but to say, you know, could I help you in this in uh, solving this particular problem and and really just helping? And, you know, I used to do this really at the very beginning of my career. I never knew that it was called paying it forward, but it works and people really value you when you do that and you build goodwill and ultimately people will want to help you when you need it and reach out and being accountable and that's being accountable sounds like it means you expect punishment but it's about recognizing that you're on the hook for results whatever those are in your in your job and performing to a level that will get desired outcome and also accepting responsibility when it doesn't happen it's amazing you know if you just say you know i tried i failed right uh, i learned and I'm willing to, you know, advance based on that and move on, and all of that I think wraps up in a uh, the wrapping that I put around all of that is ownership, and I don't mean owning as in having a, you know, being the, the an interest the, in an entity, uh, financial interest right. in, in the entity, but really being, you know, a lot of people use the term engagement. Engagement is sort of a level in my mind below ownership. Owning is like saying to yourself. What happens in this organization that I'm part of, I own it and I'm responsible for at least my piece of it. And that's, you know, back to, you know, do I feel motivated when I come to work in the morning? As Mm -hmm. you said earlier, yes. I mean, because I feel ownership of this set of responsibilities that I've been privileged to be endowed with.
1: Yeah, I feel certainly the same way at HVAM. I mean, I, I still, I track very actively on this notion of got to where I feel put down by it versus get to. Mm-hmm. And I have so many get to days. I feel so fortunate, so blessed to be able to like do this work and to engage in it with our members. And so I, I'm with you on that. I think ownership is a step beyond engagement. And I think it can be powerful Now to the extent that we can model that to our teams and to our members. That's where the leadership success comes, right? Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to steal that. Get to versus got to. Are you I mean, going to steal that? I, yes. Change your body language. <laughs> when you do it. You know, kind of go low and speak differently, and then you know. But but yeah, I think we're delighted that you and I both get to do this work. So, last question: What? And you've answered this to some extent just now with the notions of engagement versus ownership and taking responsibility and coming from a place of gratitude. And offering help and paying it forward—all great advice. So, to some extent, you've answered this question. But let me ask it explicitly: What is your key advice to both emerging and
2: established leaders in our field? Well, there's so much to learn, and I think you need to learn. We've got a lot of folks who talk and think they got the best idea. A lot of it's driven by you know something they just heard from somebody or um, what they might even have a financial interest in promoting and so much of what goes on in healthcare is frankly ignores the fact that there are these folks at the other end of it called I don't call them patients I call them people right it's because we do too they're not always patients right sometimes they're called clients or they're called beneficiaries but they're people at the core they're people and we need to focus on the people and Frankly, there are some folks providing some services that are not valuable to people and those services should be really questioned as to whether they're necessary for the healthcare system. And, you know, we do have this system of third-party payment that enables many of us to get a somebody other than the patient or the person to compensate for. And so we so focus on the... Um, on that payment source that we often forget the person part. And we really need to focus on the person. Well, Bob Atlas, I cannot thank you enough for making
1: the time to be the guest today on the HFAM podcast, Quality Care Talks. I wish you continued success at MHA. I tremendously value our partnership. Now we just got to go work together to build a partnership amongst our members. And I'm optimistic about it, like you. And me too. I look forward to working with you and all of your constituents. Absolutely. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us on Quality Care Talks. We would love your feedback on today's episode. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes. And don't forget about the upcoming HFAM Leadership Institute on September 27th, 2018. The keynote address will be delivered by Michael Bronfine, CEO of Curio Wellness. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from a national healthcare leader about the current and future impact of medical cannabis in mainstream healthcare settings. Register today at www.hfam.org. Quality Care Talks is produced by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, the state's oldest and largest nationally affiliated association of skilled nursing and rehabilitation centers.